Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. And the fact that you keep coming back, that's a good sign. This is, I told Terry on my way here, this was, it's already our fourth session with you all, so it's uh, adding up a fair bit. Before I pray, I'll uh, let you know which proverb I'm going to do. I'm going to refer to a couple others quickly, but the main one is Proverbs 15.4. And it says, the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but the deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Let's pray. Good morning, Father. We don't take for granted the the gift you've given us of your word, of time together, and uh, the opportunity to listen to your Holy Spirit. So please make sense of our words, and uh, what is of you may it enter our hearts to encourage, to direct, to give wisdom, and to bring delight in knowing that you are our Father. Pray that you will also strengthen Shannon when she resumes when I'm done. All right, apparently, today you'll be diving into 2 Samuel chapter 9, am I right? And it's the story of, well, I don't know how she's going to pronounce his name. Some say Mephibosheth, and if you're Jewish, you say Mephibosheth. So I don't know which one you're going to do. The first one? Okay. If she does the first one consistently and properly, that's an accomplishment in and of itself. So Mephibosheth. And uh, it's the story of how he wins the David Kindness Lottery. I want you to think about that. Now, of course, his name is a mouthful. And I got I hope you don't mind. I'm going to read you a text I got from Shannon yesterday. Uh, just a little bit of back and forth so that I make sure that what I'm doing is okay. And I don't want to cut her grass too much. So, anyways, so here's what she texted me. I am correct in thinking that cyber was running soul's land before me, for the chef was restored correct, because later on he tried to turn David against myth of a chef in order to get land back, correct? <laughs> well, that's what I have to deal with, we can and go. And it's a good thing I have some Pentecostal assemblies of Canada background in me because you really need the gift of interpreting, interpretation of tongues in order to get what she's saying. Siri right. can't understand my accent. Yeah, stupid well, Siri. Yeah, stupid Siri. Blame it on Siri. Yeah. All right. Let's get back into this. You've, you've seen how the early days of Israel's monarchy was full of drama. I mean, Chad has already laid a lot of that out for you. Uh, this first experiment with the monarchy certainly hasn't been going so well. Was Saul really the best candidate? You looked at that. All sorts of royal court intrigue has been happening already, and it's only going to get crazier with the, the future conspiracies, the betrayals, the fratricide, and even one especially hair-raising incident with Absalom. And uh, she might cover that one. Some of you may get that, some of you may not. In the midst of the royal court intrigue is Walden, the story of a character who 
really seems to have a two-bit role. In fact, the first time he's mentioned, you may wonder, why was he even mentioned? In between two chapters, chapters 8 and 10, we have chapter 9. And these two chapters, 8 and 10, they record some pretty horrific and barbaric stuff. The military conquests and campaigns, and back in those days, I mean, everything that even King David did, a lot of it would have been considered war, war crimes today. Think about that. So pretty nasty bloodshed. But in between the stories of the two chapters of bloodshed and horror is this little oasis chapter, chapter 9. And in this wonderful little oasis is a refreshing, brilliantly reflected gospel story if we were there to see it. So, Mephibosheth. Even his introduction into the narrative seems to point out his, his role on the sidelines. I want you to remember that. On the sidelines. He gets one verse in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, when he's first mentioned. And it's just this little parenthetical aside. It's, it's almost like, why bother mentioning him? And in fact, we, the readers, we might tend to just brush it aside, brush him aside, as if he's insignificant in this greater narrative of, of the great King David. Well, we know that he's Jonathan's son. We know that the basic story that his nurse panicked when she heard the news of the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. She picks up the five-year-old boy, Mephibosheth. She's running to flee. She's clumsy or whatever happens. She drops him, major fumble, and he's severely injured for the rest of his life. He's crippled to some degree by the fall. Crippled by the fall. A number of years later, Mephibosheth is back on stage. Now we're at 2 Samuel chapter 9. But now he doesn't write a mere verse. In fact, he, he writes a whole chapter. David has now basically consolidated his kingdom. He's fought many battles. But there's a side of David that isn't just about conquering and destroying enemies. There is a side of David that seeks justice. There's a side of David that wants to show favor, where favor is due. And so he asks the question, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? That's kind of a sad question, isn't it? Anyone left in the house of Saul, the first king of Israel, is there anybody left? It's devastating. What a horrible thing. How the mighty have fallen. Of course, the answer comes, yes, there is There is somebody, and his name is Mephibosheth, and so all of chapter 9 is, is about him, but it's also emphasizing David's loving kindness, because if you do the math four times, about one out of every three verses there, David's desire is repeated, and it's the line that says, Mephibosheth will always eat at my table. So, let me pose the question one more time. This is a little bit of an aside. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for the sake of Jonathan? And as I was working on this yesterday morning, the thought came to me, and I wondered if I should share it with you, but I don't know. Couldn't there have been another candidate? Now, dig deep into that Rolodex of your brain right now. Is there another candidate? Somebody to whom David was anything but kind. 
Anybody? Let me give you a hint. Someone he was married to? Mephibosheth's aunt? Jonathan's sister or half-sister? We're not sure. At least I'm not sure. And it's interesting how her tie to Jonathan, whom David wanted to honor, that her tie to Jonathan didn't stir any compassion in David's heart. So, we'll let Shannon or Beth Moore handle that answer. <laughs> now, to Michal, David was not a tree of healing. But, let's give David his due. He's not the perfect foreshadowing of a greater king who's to come, the king of kings. But David still foreshadows the gospel message in this chapter. So, back to the search for something to show kindness to. Where is this royal family survivor found? Well, you got it in your text there of the Bible. It's, he's living in a place called Lodabar, or if you, you're American, it's Lodabar. It's an insignificant detail that, again, we might just kind of rush over to get to the crux of the story. But the term Lodabar, it means a couple of things. One of them is pastureless. So, pastor-less, not pastor-less. How's my Canadian accent? <laughs> All right. So, imagine this. One who is without a pastor is soon going to be doing what? He's going to be supping in style in the king's royal pasture. David will be preparing a table before him, supplying Mephibosheth with his daily bread. But the Hebrew term Lodavar can carry a whole lot more freight. Literally, it means no word. No word. Mephibosheth is living in a place called no word. But he will soon receive some other words. Proverbs says, like a cup of cold water from a distant land is good news to a weary soul. Chapter 25, 25. Like a cup of cold water to a weary soul is good news from a distant land. He's about to get some very good news to his weary soul. The land of no word. What no words have, has Mephibosheth been listening to all of his life? I'm crippled. I'm without dignity. I don't deserve a better life. My destiny to live as royalty has been crushed. I come from a dysfunctional family, and I'm sure there was much more to uh, wallow in for him. For example, the shame of a failed dynasty. My grandfather's soul was a loser. My father didn't even get a chance to prove himself as the heir to the throne. What chance do I have in life? I have no chance, no words. In chapter 9, verse 8, we see his self deprecating words to the very one who wants to exalt him. And he says this to King David, he says, what is your servant that you should notice? What's the line? A dead dog like me. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life. But a deceitful word crushes the spirit, or a deceitful tongue. You see, Mephibosheth was 
anything but a healthy tree full of robust life because his words were eating at his very roots. And his words betrayed the level of his self-esteem, a dead dog, a wretch like me. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Now, do you realize that the most deceitful words we hear railing against us are the words that we speak to ourselves? The lies we tell ourselves, the fiction that we create and that we tend to believe. We are sometimes our own self-crushers by the stories we tell ourselves. But David would have none of that deceitful negative word talk. And so Mephibosheth was able to eat at David's table like one of the king's own sons, it says in verse 11. From a fall, they crippled him to feeling that he's no more than a servant at best. But then the announcement of good news, you're going to eat at my table, you're going to be like my son. But then he peers back into the words of self-deprecation, I'm just a dead dog. But I want you to notice the wording in chapter 9, verse 8. What is your servant that you should notice me? I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. It does to me because having prepared and studied in these few chapters, for these mornings. But if you look back in chapter 7, verse 18, what do you see? 7.18. Does it ring a bell? Does it sound familiar? David is saying back to the Lord, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? Now, in a sense, David isn't being self-deprecating. It's almost like praise God. I can't believe you're doing this for me. But when Mephibosheth says it, who am I? I'm a dead dog. That's not building himself up. It's not. It's nothing else but low, low self-esteem. And David will go on in back in chapter seven to say, "Is this your usual way of dealing with man?" What a great question that is, and that's worthy of meditation. Is this your usual way of how you deal with man, Lord, that you exalt us, that you pick us up, that you have plans for us? And implied in what David says there in that question is the whole idea that God is a God who shows favor. He's a God of loving kindness, and he restores. He takes lives that are broken, and he gets them back in the game. And so David, as we talked about last week, he heard... God's healing words to him at time of great disappointment. The temple building was denied to him. And once again, David had reason to write. When he was totally disappointed by the building permit being denied, he has reason to write, he restoreth my soul. He doesn't twist God's no words into this little bit of self-deceit. God has rejected me for building the temple. I'm no good, therefore. I thought I was doing the right thing. Obviously, I can't do anything right. God's no means I'm a loser. And there's blood on my hands, and when the news gets out that the temple I want to build has been denied me, I'm going to feel so full of shame. It'll be more than I can bear. But amazingly, David doesn't listen to any of those kind of no words. He doesn't land in the self-pitying city of Lodabar. You see, for all that David does get wrong, and there's plenty, sometimes David manages to shine brilliantly. 
And he will now pay forward God's favor to Mephibosheth. And David, notice, David speaks yes words to him. Yes, Mephibosheth, even by calling him by his name, he's given him dignity and esteem. You are a somebody. Yes, you will get your lands back. Yes, you will be secure. Yes, you are worthy to eat at my table, not just once in a while, but always. David wasn't giving him a kind of a little bit of a pity pat on the back. He wasn't just giving him crumbs from his table. Not a handout, not a nice meal in a soup kitchen. At his table. That's a sign of intimacy and friendship. In Proverbs 27.10, we're told, Do not forsake your friend, the friend of your father. David demonstrated his love for his friend Jonathan by pouring love into Jonathan's son. Do you know what the name Mephibosheth means? It's a name that's pretty long, so it better have a cool meaning, right? It comes from two Hebrew words. The first half of the, the word of his name means to break apart, to break apart. The second half, the Bosheth, means shame. You put the two together, what do you have? To break apart shame. Where was Mephibosheth living? In the land of no word, in the land of shame. The shame his past life brought about. But what does David do? He breaks apart the shame by inviting him into his royal court. And perhaps that is our ongoing challenge, is it not? Do we really believe that the king wants us to dine with him every day? Whosoever will may come. Do you really believe that? His invitation means that he delights in you. Do you believe that? No matter how crippled you may have been by the fall, by any fall, into any hole, is there shame in your life that needs to be broken apart by his best words to you this morning? And so hear his words of invitation. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let the king's invitation trump all the other spirit-crushing noble words that you've heard in life. All those noble words that have crushed your spirit and listen to his wonderful words of life. And they will heal you. And he says, come, sit under the tree of life. In conclusion, are we all Mephibosheths of one sort or another? Are we all damaged to one degree by the fall? Our destiny apparently in shambles by some bad choices, maybe. But God, but God, the great turnaround. And so let me leave you with two questions. Do you really believe that Jesus loves you as you are and not as you should be? Do you really believe he loves you as you are and not as you should be? Second question. Does it ever cross your mind that Jesus is proud and you've accepted his gift of grace? It's rather amazing. 
Okay, so here we go. So 2 Samuel chapter 8. So it says, After this it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methig Amah from the hand of the Philistines. That is another name for the city of Gath. All right, so I want, I want you to be reminded, kind of, because what we're going to find out is David is going to conquer all the surrounding enemies, north, south, east, west. Uh, do you remember where the cities of the Philistines were? Always think of the Philistines. They were Aegean. They came across over the sea, okay, the Mediterranean. And so when you think about that, then that'll help you remember that they had come into Egypt at one point and were pushed out. And so they settled all along the Mediterranean Sea. So their five main cities were lined up right there along the Mediterranean. And that's why the majority of the time they pushed the Israelites into the Shephelah or the hill country and up into the mountains. So now David has come down and he has recaptured all of the territory um, on the west side all up into the Mediterranean Sea. So he has conquered the Philistines. Then it goes on in verse 2 that says, Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines he measured off those to be put to death, and with one line those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. I want you to understand how barbaric this is. Okay, don't, don't ever miss it. These were barbaric people. Battles were brutal. And this is especially brutal because he literally is drawing the length of a cord. He has lined them up on the ground and where the length of the cord falls determines who lives. Only a third of them were not slaughtered. And so it does make you stop and think, gosh, what is the deal with his attitude towards the Moabites? I mean, this is very brutal. And especially when you know the history, because think about it. David's great-grandmother, Ruth, is a Moabite. That's odd, right? So why, why so harsh? And don't forget that, do you remember when David fled for his life and he was in the cave? Do you remember his family joining him and me telling you they probably did that because if Saul's trying to find David, who would he go to first? The family. And if you remember in scripture, it says that he actually took, once he left the cave, he took his family and left them in the care of the Moabites. So it just makes you question. I don't know, but I just wonder if along the way, somehow something went bad, wrong, with David and the Moabites, because this is very brutal uh, to be marking out, you know, every two of the three would be perished, would, would kill, be killed. So then, so now Moab would have been to the east. All right. So now he's, he's conquering the people of the west. He's conquering the people of the east. And now he's going to go up into the land um, of Syria. So it says in verse three through eight, David also defeated, I can't say these names, y'all know I can't, Hadadezer, how would you say that? Hadadezer, Hadadezer, I need to look it up on Blue Letter Bible because it'll tell you how to say it, um, king of Zobah, and he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates, that's the important part I want you to see, so the bottom line is this, he goes, there's two main areas of Syria, 
two main uh, cities. It's Zoba and Damascus. Damascus is their capital. So basically, he heads that direction and he conquers Zoba or fights with them first. It says that, look how many chariots, look how many horses it says that they have. David took with him, took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses. Do you know what that means? He cut their hamstring, like the tendon, so that they would have no speed. Uh, a couple of reasons there you can kind of guess. Well, number one, right, you don't want the horses to go back into the hands of the enemy. So he, in some way, cripples them. But that's a lot of horses for David to take care of as well out on this journey. But he keeps some so that he can, he can use the chariots that he just took. And do you remember uh, Samuel's instructions for what kings were not supposed to do? They were not supposed to acquire a lot of women, a lot of silver and gold, and horses. And do you remember why? This is a long time ago. You probably don't remember. I just happen to remember because this is what I do. Um, it's because he first told them that because I have freed you from Egypt. It was the Egyptians that bred horses. And he was saying, I don't want you to be uh, in the horse trade because that will take you back to the enemy of Egypt. And I don't want you to get mixed up into that stuff. Um, and so in some ways, he can't take care of all these horses. He has to cripple them so the enemy doesn't get it. But in another way, he's also not accumulating horses. He's taking enough, but he's trusting in God. And that's where we get some trust in chariots and horses. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Every time I say that verse, I think of a funny story. It just confirms to y'all what a wacko I am. But I was, this is a long time ago when I was teaching school. I was teaching actually over at Hillcrest Middle School. And I was teaching math because I wasn't in a Christian school at the time. It's when I very first started teaching and I realized how much I loved it. And um, because that was never my intention. So it was back in the days where we were having an election that you guys will probably remember. And we had a little issue with the hanging chad. Do you remember that? Okay. And we thought our guy won. And in, in that situation, I was probably the only one uh, that was kind of on the conservative ticket uh, with some of my friends who were teaching and, you know, they would give me a hard time. But so the next day, so we thought we won, but then maybe we didn't win because of the hanging chad, right? So I go to school that next day and I'm in the coffee room, I'm making coffees and this one teacher is giving me all kinds of grief and he's like, oh, looks like your guy may not win and this whole thing. And I do not know what came over me, but I turned from the coffier and I went, some trust in chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. And I just walked out of the coffee room. He was so stunned. He had absolutely nothing to say. I mean, when is the last time someone just turned around and sang in your face? I don't know. But later on, we were walking down the quad and he was with another teacher. And he said, I don't know who's going to win this election, but I'm going to vote for her in the next one. And I'm like, all right, all right, it's all good. But that's what, it, that's what David is doing. You know, he's not trusting in chariots. He's trusting in the name of the Lord, our God. The big part I want you to understand is that he conquered the Philistines. He conquered the Moabites. 
He's conquered these, uh, the lands of Syria. They actually even came together in response and tried to fight against him and he conquered them. And the point is up, to the, up in the land of Syria, he conquers all the way to the great Euphrates River. Now, why is that important? Because if you go back to what God promised Abraham, he promised Abraham back then, your nation will be in a land that is not their own. They will be put in bondage for 400 years, but I will hear their cry. Just to sound familiar? And I will free them. I will raise up a leader. And he goes on to promise, and I will give you the land from the great river of Egypt all the way to the great river of the Euphrates. And this is coming true. These are the golden years, and David is pushing back the enemies. Um, then it goes on, and it talks about one king that comes to pay tribute. Um, and so that shows you that not all neighboring nations um, were coming against the Israelites with violence. Some of them backed down, and they paid tribute. And the biggest thing is that David's name was made great. And because his name was so great and he was such a mighty warrior, at this time it was the golden years and the enemies were pushed back and his name was so great that Israel did have a rest because bottom line, nobody wanted to mess with David. He was that kind of leader and that kind of warrior. Um, it says that he dedicated the golden shields that he took in war, he dedicated those to the Lord. Um, and it even says that all the other gold and silver and bronze that he got from the enemies, he also dedicated the Lord. Why is he needing gold, silver, bronze? Why, why do you think he's going to need all that? What'd you say? Because he's going to build the temple, right? But I also don't you want you to over-spiritualize it because how did the pagans... What did they do when they had victories? They would also take whatever they stole or the sacred things. Remember the ark? Remember when the Philistines stole the ark? Where did they take it? They took it into the temple of their gods because in any battle, if you win, basically the statement that's being made is that your God is greater than my God. And so, but he takes these golden uh, shields and the bronze and the silver, and he takes it into the Lord and dedicates it to the Lord. When you get to, um, basically, I think it's verse uh, is it 15. Uh, it says, so David reigned over all Israel. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all of his people. Israel is finally to the place where their enemies have been subdued. And now David gets to actually rule over his people and have government. And he establishes justice and judgment for all the people. So that tells you kind of the state that they're in. And he is fulfilling the duty of government. And so in order to set up government, look what he does in verse 16 through 18. What is he doing? I would call that building a cabinet. Mm-hmm. He's building a cabinet because now they are actually back home. They are establishing government to judge the people instead of constantly fighting with the enemies that are in the land because now David has secured the land. So he is setting up 
quite the cabinet, so he knows that any leader cannot lead on his own. He has to delegate, and he needs a good cabinet. And so that's what he did. And I think that's a take home for all of us micromanagers that we need to have other people helping us lead with their gifts, recognizing we don't have them all. I know I don't. Amen. Um, I want to tell you, though, in that section, who the Cherethites and the Pelethites are. Okay? They were hired soldiers from Crete. So why do you think possibly David could have gone with the whole hired soldier thing and put, uh, I think it's Beniah, he put him in charge of them. Why do you think he chose this like neutral group, literally paid them for this occupation in government? Yeah, it's, it's like a check and balance because it was their job to protect them and they did not have any affiliation with any tribe. They would not be partisan. They uh, wouldn't get swayed to one side or the other. Remember, this is a political environment still that is going on. Okay, now, that, those are the highlights from the points you probably need to know from chapter 8. So I want to go into chapter 9 because that's really the heart of what we're going to do tonight. So chapter 9 says this. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left in the house of Saul? Right there, it kind of makes me sad. I mean, look what he's saying. Is anyone left? Is there anyone left from the line of Saul? Wow, how the mighty have fallen, right? But I also love the fact that he says anyone. He doesn't care who. He doesn't care who. He doesn't care what they're like. He's just like, just show me anyone because he says that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. I love that because finally, David, we talked about this last week. David has come to a time of peace. Um, I told you that here he is in this amazing palace looking out over this kingdom that he's built. And that's when he finally looked around and he said, how am I living in such a beautiful palace? And my Lord is living in a tent. He had time enough to stop, to count his blessings, to understand where he was. And the first thing he wants to do is bless God because God has blessed him. But look at the second thing he wants to do. Not just bless God, but bless others. That's coming from his blessing. And I do think, I can't help but kind of romanticize this because I think, why is Jonathan coming to his mind? Well, he's finally done it. Think about it. He's finally done it. He's united the kingdom. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant home. He's built the palace. He has slayed the enemies. He is sitting there. Who do you think he would love to talk to about it? Who was supposed to be by his side? Jonathan. So I can imagine he thinks of Jonathan often. He would want to tell Jonathan what happened. He would want to show Jonathan what happened. He is dreaming back of how they started as young men and the fact that Jonathan said, oh, you will be king, but I will be by your side. And then when he remembers Jonathan, he remembers the covenant he made with Jonathan. And he's like, if Jonathan's not here, I will hold my covenant. Is anyone left? Is anyone out there that I can bestow this loving kindness on for Jonathan's sake? Um, and remember, why would this be risky? 
If he's looking for anyone remaining in the line of Saul, why would this be risky to him? Because the, the custom of the day is that when a new king takes over, what does he do? He takes out the entire line of the king before. So we're going to see why Mephibosheth is hiding. But to bring him out into the open, uh, I've already told you this is a political environment. And there are people um, that I, I'm going to introduce you to one in a minute. There are people who still think that Saul's kingdom should be ruling. And so to bring that heir out is a little risky because David should have, according to custom, killed them all. That was what was customary. But he went against the principle of revenge. He went against self-preservation. Um, and he decided that he would ask what he could do for the family of his enemy. Think about that. How often do we think, hmm, I wonder how I can bless the family of my enemy. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think very often. I mean, remember the years he ran from Saul, but he does it out of his great love for Jonathan. It says this, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. It's not just because of relationship. It is because of covenant. It wasn't just based on feelings. It was based on a promise. Let, re, let me remind you of the promise. Um, you might want to write it out in that section beside uh, in your Bible so you'll know where to look for it. But it's 1 Samuel 20, 13 through 15. We went over this. And Jonathan is speaking and he says this. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. What just happened? The Lord has cut off at this point. It seems every enemy of David on the face of this earth. And he remembers that line. And he's like, oh my gosh, my covenant. I need to make sure there is no one alive uh, from the line of Saul. Because I need to show them loving kindness. I promised Jonathan that I would. And not only did he promise Jonathan, I want to remind you he promised Saul. 1 Samuel 24, this will sound familiar to you. 1 Samuel 24, 20 through 22. It is uh, one of the two times David did not kill Saul when he had the opportunity. This is Saul speaking. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Why? Because Saul never keeps his promises, but David does. That's why. So David is searching for this person out of his love for Jonathan. Yes, it's feelings and it's affection and it's love, but he made a promise. And he keeps his promises. Verse 2 says this. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. I want you to get used to hearing this language. That is a greeting 
from a superior to an inferior. Uh, the superior calls your name and you say what? Servant. I, uh, your servant at your service. I am your servant. It should remind you a little bit of Samuel and the whole Eli thing. Right? Remember? Samuel. Samuel. And he keeps going to Eli and Eli finally realizes, oh no, the superior is calling. So when he calls your name again, you say what? Your servant is listening. Yes, Lord, your servant is listening. So he, he put himself in proper place. <coughs> so it says this. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir in Lodabar. Okay, so who is Ziba? Ziba was one of the servants, main servants in Paul's kingdom. I'm Paul, I'm losing my mind. In Saul's kingdom. And so the bottom line is, in David's search to find someone remaining in the line of Saul, he has to go and search out people who might know. And I mean, this took some work. Like he, he searched these people out. He's the one that went looking. Mephibosheth sure didn't come looking for him, right? And so the king went looking for this, this person. And the only way he could find it, he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some investigating. I'm going to go to all the servants of Saul and find out. And he definitely says there is someone, okay? Because David is, he, he's blessed, so he wants to be a blessing. If you take home anything, take home that. God never blesses with the intention for us to keep. He just doesn't. And I'm not just talking about money. If he has blessed you, with gifts, they were given to you to give away. Your spiritual gift is not yours to keep. Your spiritual gift is also not what determines your spirituality. Because you can actually perform your gift in a very selfish way. Your, your spirituality or your relationship with Jesus is seen through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control the fruit of the spirit, but your spiritual gift, your blessings have been given for you to bless. So to be quite honest, if you're not using your blessings or your gifts to pour back into the body of Christ, then we're not being a great steward of, I nearly got killed by that bug. Did you see it flew my eye? <laughs> um, you're not being a good steward of the gift that God has given you. And we all have different gifts. And don't underplay them because I am telling you every single one is necessary and definitely do not look at the ones that are up front and think that's so great. I wish I had it because I'm going to tell you, you probably don't. You probably don't wish you had it. And so to love on someone one on one, to have the gift of hospitality, of giving, of all of the different things, it's just it's amazing. And they're given to us to be given away. He says, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Okay, first off, I think that's interesting because he says, yes, there is one, but then he has to tell him about it. Did he ask him about his physical appearance? No. So why is he saying that? Why is uh, 
this, this guy, Ziba, saying, oh, but let me tell you, he's lame in his feet. He, he's not a threat. And to be honest, King, he's not worth your time. He's lame. He's the lowly. He's the downcast. Um, and he's like, really, he's not worth your time. There's nothing really there to investigate, nothing really there to see. And so he gives, he gives him that information. But I love the answer. Um, the answer that, that David gives is he, bottom line, he just says, where is he? Where is he? Right? And uh, keep in mind, David is putting himself at risk by bringing Mephibosheth into his palace. I mean, Mephibosheth has been hiding from David, but he's also been unknown to the world. And now he's about to come in. Uh, we'll see traitors like 2 Samuel 16 introduces us to someone called Shimei. He's going to be a problem for David because he is so uh, partisan to Saul. And he would, he would be just the kind of person that would use any kind of pawn to try to bring the kingdom back under Saul. But so David is taking, and don't forget, Mephibosheth's uncle was Ishbosheth. I mean, he's the one that first tried to maintain the kingdom under the line of Saul. But um, David simply says, where is he? He doesn't need to know one thing about him. First off, he asks for anyone. And he doesn't need to know that he is lame. He doesn't need to know he is lowly. That's not the point. He doesn't want anything from this person. What does he want to do? Bless that person. He just wants to love. He's not asking for anything in return. He just wants to love that person. So he says he is in the house of Makir. So this tells you the lowly situation he is in. He is not even in his own home. He is basically in exile. Don't forget that. He has been exiled. He was born into royalty. And because of a crazy fall, he was exiled away. And um, I cannot imagine what all he was told. By the way, Makir, he is a powerful sheik that was in the Transjordan area, the east of the Jordan, and he came from the tribe of Manasseh. And later on, in 2 Samuel chapter 17, he is going to prove extremely loyal to David. He's a powerful man, and when David has to escape Absalom, this guy is going to prove loyal. Um, and which is interesting because he's the man who had Mephibosheth in his home and maybe, just maybe, he saw the loving kindness that David showed him, but he stays loyal. It says that he lived with this guy in a region called Lodabar. Okay? Lo means no in Hebrew, and Dabar means pasture, pasture land. So in other words, you have a picture of no pasture or pastureless, okay? So when you think of pasture, what do you think of? Go talk loud to me. What? Okay, so yeah, you think of sustenance, you think of fruitfulness, you think of, do you think of like peace and rest and space? And he is in this place where he is pastureless, he is homeless, he has none of that. It also means no word. And so he is completely unaware of any good news. That is for sure. 
He has gotten no word. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, he's about to get a word. And that word is going to be really interesting because his name means, the first part of his name means to break up. And then the word Bosheth, remember Ishbosheth? Remember how I told you his name was like man of shame? Well, Mephibosheth has that same section of shame, but it's to break up shame. Some people say it to scatter, okay? I think I like break up better, to break up shame. So he's living in a place that is pastureless. He is in exile, not even living in his home. And there is going to come a word to him in a place where there is no word. And that word is going to do a beautiful job because it is going to break up shame. Why is he feeling shame? Well, I mean, he's got it on all sides, does he? He's lame. Yeah, he's lame. He can't probably work or he's very handicapped. He is from the line of Saul. Um, and that line was rejected by God. And the sheer question, is there anyone left? Um, he was taken at five by his nurse, right? That's how he, that's how it, he was injured. She fell when she heard about the death of Saul and Jonathan. So if she took him away and the culture says he's in danger, what has he been told his whole life? He's in danger and that he needs to stay hidden because the king is a danger to him. And so that's how, he, that's how he's grown up. Well, now he's an adult man and he has a wife and a son. So how do you think they've grown up? In hiding, in exile. And I'm going to tell you what, he's dreading the day that this happens. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated him, Mephibosheth, and he answered what? Here is your servant. Okay, so can you imagine the dread of that knock that came on his door? His whole life, he has been trying to hide from the king. In his shame, he has been in exile. He has been hiding from the king, doing all he can to cover himself up and not be seen. And yet, all of a sudden, one day out of the blue, he's been waiting his whole life for the hammer to drop, and he opens up the door, and there are soldiers of David waiting there. What do you think he thinks? Well, here it is. The day has come. And you can imagine what his family also thought. And I don't think the soldiers would have been really forthright with information. I think they came and got him, did their job, and took him to the king. So the whole trip there, he is thinking, I am going to be executed by the king because that is what I deserve. That's who I am. And so he is going to execute me. It says he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Wow. Honestly, at that moment, the king could have had his head right there. In some ways, it reminds me of Esther, how she came in and literally just prostrated herself in front of the king waiting. It was either going to be the worst day of her life or the best day of her life, and she was counting on God. And so Mephibosheth comes, and it says, um, uh, hold on. I already talked to you about your servant is listening. 
Okay, verse 7. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Y'all don't even know how beautiful that is. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? So the minute he's with him, I cannot imagine how he's feeling. He is lame, which is already shameful. And he is, I'm assuming, walking in with crutches or someone's bringing him in in the palace of David. Can you imagine the attendants? Can you imagine the people standing in that court going, who is this? You can almost hear the clicking of his crutches trying to come down, and he's thinking this is it. And I just wonder what he saw in David's face. I wonder if he was hoping that what he saw was a little glimpse of loving kindness. But I am sure he appreciated that the first words out of his mouth were, fear not. He says, I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. Unbelievable. David had made a covenant. So he's been living in a land of no word. He just gets word and it's not any word. Y'all, it is the good news. This is, this is the good news. He had no idea there had been a promise made. As far as I can tell, he was about five when he was carried away. He had no idea about the relationship of David and Jonathan. More than likely, he might have heard some stories but the custom said he would be killed. He's hiding. He's in exile. And now he has heard that literally David loved Jonathan and Jonathan loved David and David made a covenant and he's keeping. This is good news. I cannot imagine the relief. And then not only is it good news that I'm not going to kill you, which is mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. But dude, I'm about to pile on you unmerited favor. Because what I'm going to do is I am going to restore to you all that you lost. It's amazing. All of the land of Saul, I am going to give back to you. That is grace. That is not just mercy. Can you imagine? He is sitting there. I don't even know what he could possibly be thinking right now. And then on top of that, he says, And you shall eat bread at my table continually. What does that mean? That's not just restoration. That's relationship. That's what that is. He's like, I'm going to treat you as one of my own. You can come in and out. Your family. Remember, at one point, Saul brought David into his family like that. David dined at his table. But David tells Mephibosheth, because of my promise that I made to your father, who I love, you will have the freedom. You will be provided for. Don't you worry. You will have my ear. You have relationship. I hope you are seeing the symbolism all through this. I'm going to clarify it to you at the end, but man, is it forever in there? The fact that, listen, I'm not kidding. He, he was born into royalty and because of a fall, he was wounded and he hid in exile and the great king came looking for him. Because he had no idea a promise had been made. And he goes before the king and the king looks at him and says, don't be afraid. Because of my great love for Jonathan, because of my great love for Jesus, what? 
I love you. And I'm actually going to restore back to you everything that you have lost. And you are free to have a relationship with me and eat at my table. This right here is honestly one of the most beautiful pictures of grace and salvation in all of the Old Testament. And it reminds me of Isaiah 43.1, which is one of my all-time favorite verses. It says, But now thus saith the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. You know what I just realized about that? That's so pretty. Because when you hear the word created you, it makes me think of Genesis chapter 1, which is, it is Elohim Barah. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the all-powerful God speaks and creates something from nothing. It is the plural God acting singular. So when you see that in Genesis chapter 1, it, it's kind of grammatically incorrect if you look at it. It would be like the dogs is barking. That's not all right. I mean, if you're from Arkansas, it might be all right, but it should be the dogs are. But why is it that way? Because we have a plural God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that acts as one. And so you have that. And so when you see created, O Jacob, but then he formed you, O Israel. By chapter two, it is Yahweh or Jehovah God, Jehovah Elohim. It's his intimate name. So right here, you're seeing the all-powerful God, the intimate God, and then he says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've paid your price. I've set you free. I've bought you back, and I have called you by name. You are mine. That's exactly what David just said to Mephibosheth. He's like, listen, Mephibosheth, I have called you by name. I have redeemed you, and you are mine. You are free to sit at my table. And Mephibosheth said, what is your servant that you should look on me as such a dead dog as I? He is stunned. I can't imagine what he thinks of himself. I would imagine he's fairly insecure standing around the beauty of that palace. Um, and he is like, how in the world did this happen? I am nothing but a dead dog in your presence. It shows honestly how he felt about himself. It showed humility. He was stunned. I just wonder how we would feel if we were in the presence of Almighty God in his palace. Isaiah said, what? Lord, go away from me. I'm a man of unclean lips. When Peter realized who Jesus was, when he really realized it, he said, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. He saw, I'm a dead dog. But you also see that in 1 Samuel 24, 14, if you remember that same phrase was when Saul kept chasing David. Do you remember what David said? Dude, why are you wasting time with me? Like, why do you keep chasing me? I'm not a problem to you. Why do you keep chasing me? I'm just a dead dog, a flea. Do you remember that? Basically, they're saying I'm nothing. I'm absolutely nothing. But yet, David thinks Mephibosheth is something because he said, you will be eating continually at my table. In verse 9, it goes on to say, And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, 
so will your servant do. But as for Mephibosheth, he says it again. He shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. Okay, so I'm going to suggest something to you. So he calls in this Ziba, who is the one who gave him the information of where Mephibosheth was, with the tagline of what? He's lame in his feet. He's worthless. Uh, Probably you don't even need to be concerned. And now that one just became his boss. Because who do you think has been caring for all the lands of Saul this entire time? Ziba and his 15 sons and his 20 servants. What do you possibly think his attitude towards those lands could have become? Those are mine. I've worked this land. Now all, and Mephibosheth wasn't a concern of his. He was in exile. But now David has restored Mephibosheth. And so now he has put him over Ziba and he is saying to him, now you guys will be working this land for him. And did you notice how many times he told him he'd be eating at his table? He he told him twice. Why do you think that is? Like, dude, I'm serious about this. He's like my son. He is in my family. He will have my ear. He will be taken care of, just so you know. And and so Ziba says, I will do all that the king asks. But I want to show you some interesting things. This is why I assume I'm kind of uh, looking at Ziba in the negative. You want to? Because you're probably thinking, oh, well, how does she know that? Why does she think that? Well, look at 2 Samuel chapter 16. I'll give you a little taste of what's coming. I don't want you to think I have judged him unfairly. So at this point, you don't know this yet, but Absalom is going to try to take over his father's kingdom. And so at this point, David is running. Listen to what happens in chapter 16. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was who? There's that old Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. And he had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, a hundred cakes of raisins, a hundred cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. Woo, he's prepared. He's got all kinds of stuff for this escape. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the desert. Then the king asked, where's your master's grandson? So the whole household of the king is escaping. And he's like, wait a minute, where's Mephibosheth? Listen to his answer. Ziba said to him, he is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. See what's happening? And then listen to what the king says. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. Do you see what he's doing? He's like, dude, I don't know what to tell you. You've been so good to him. But I brought you all this stuff. I want to make sure you're taken care of in your exile. But he's not going because he thinks this is his opportunity to get his royalty back. He's kind of betraying you. And so David, believing that at the moment, and why would David believe it? Well, this isn't a great time. His son has betrayed him, Absalom, and he's running for his life. And now he's heard this about Mephibosheth. 
And so he gives the land to uh, Ziba, and I humbly bow, Ziba said, may I found favor in your eyes, my lord the king. Now, I want you to hear Mephibosheth's side of the story. Go to chapter 19, verse 24. So now David's coming back. He's coming back from his exile. It says, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned in safety. First off, that's nasty. He needs a pedicure, okay? Um, but in other words, he was in a state of what? Mourning, okay? Um, when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, my lord, the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. My lord, the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you please. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord, the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? Do whatever you want to me. This is my story, but you can do what you want. I will never ask again for your grace. I didn't, I didn't deserve it the first time. And then it goes on to say, the king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Now that the Lord, the king has arrived home safely. What story does that remind you of? With Solomon, when the two moms are fighting over the baby and he's like, oh, I tell you what, let's just cut that little thing in half, right? The one who had the right heart, who truly had the love for the child said, no, give her the child. Here, who truly had a love for the king? He's like, I don't love you because of what you've given me. I love you because you loved me. And so you see that. So I hope that you see the beauty in this picture. Are you with me? Right? And so the beauty of the gospel is this. We were created into royalty. Well, I'll just step on that so it doesn't go anywhere. We were created into royalty. We were created to rule and reign with God. And we fell. And when we fell, we became lame. And we were lame in our sin. And we had shame. And we, we went into exile. We, were, we hid from God. But in His great love for us, and because of a promise that He had made, He searched us out and He found us. And He called us to Him. He says, fear not. I have a promise for you. Today is the good news. This is the good news. And he says, I will restore all that you have lost. And I want a relationship with you. Feel free. You can come in and out. You can dine at my table. You're like my son. And at the end of the day, Mephibosheth dined at the king's table, but he was still lame. We have a relationship a relationship with God, but until we meet him, we're still lame. But you know what's beautiful about that? God provides for that, and he has provided for us servants, the Holy Spirit, because to be quite honest, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we can go reap a harvest and bring it in. 
Um, but this is the most beautiful story of grace and salvation. Lord, why would you do this for me? Your grace blows my mind. I don't know if any of y'all are as in touch with your sinful nature as I am with mine. It blows my mind every day that he would love me that way. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that even though I'm still lame, that you have literally broken apart my shame. And you have made a way for me to come to your table, to sit and to have relationship. And Lord, you have restored to me, you will restore all that we have lost through sin. And so God, I cannot wait. I cannot imagine finally seeing you face to face. And so God, I pray that we would walk around understanding what grace truly is. There, there can be no piety where grace is. Just humility. And Lord, with that humility and relationship, I truly believe that is what draws others to Jesus Christ. So God, let us use our talents. Let us look around and see all that you have blessed us with. We're so blessed. Lord, when we look at the other countries and what's going on there, our blessings are off the charts. And so God, I pray that we would have an attitude of gratitude. We would look at our blessings and we would see that and like David, want to bless you and then want to bless others. So God, I pray that this week and over the next two weeks, that these women would go out and love well, bless well. Um, and uh, God, we just give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.